Welcome to Choral Fixation, a podcast all about singing together. I'm Jackie Clydesdale. And I'm Liz Walker. And welcome to our episode about protest singing. The world has seen a wave of protests recently. Belarus, Poland, uh, and certainly in the United States with the Black Lives Matter movement. And we started talking about what it looks like to have a protest movement that involves singing and singing together specifically in terms of protest. If it still has a role to play at all and does it fall in line with the traditions we normally associate with protest movements? What are those traditions exactly? You know, when we first started talking about podcasting, about singing, you, Jackie, you shared something with me that Pete Seeger said. Yeah, it's the it's the framework for how I think about singing. It's all about like what's found when you sing with other people. And the quote that I gave you was, and when one person taps out a beat while another leads into the melody, or when three people discover a harmony they never knew existed, or a crowd joins in on a chorus as though to raise the ceiling a few feet higher, then they also know there is hope for the world. It's one of my favorite quotes. We've always wanted to talk about protest singing, and we thought that we would start with the traditions popularized by Pete Seeger and his contemporaries in the 50s and 60s. So we are all familiar with the images of the civil rights movement, and we, we, we have the images in our head of Black Americans arm in arm singing We Shall Overcome. Mm-hmm. But we don't really know anything about the practices of protest music from the civil rights era. We talk about that in our second episode on protest singing. And we found out that those practices are really made invisible by the way we talk about protest music of the 60s. But getting back to 2020, let's be really clear. We want to explore singing together, not 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 the protest music that artists are recording and listening to, because there's there's plenty of it. There's some really interesting stuff. And so much of it. this That's year, right. Yeah. And we'll touch on we'll touch on some of that, uh, you know, sort of briefly. But we're really interested in the songs that people sing together. There was an article in Forbes magazine that caught our eye. It was by Micah Handler. He's a he's a writer, but he's also a, a chorister, a conductor. He leads choruses around the world. And he described in this article going to a Washington, D.C. protest with Dr. Issei Barnwell uh, from Sweet Honey and the Rock, which is a very famous ensemble. He described her being um, maybe perplexed mm. uh, because she didn't see traditional singing as she was familiar with it. And she said to Micah, you know, you can tell that this was organized by young people. Older Black activists would have organized singing. And we were reading this. I, I sent this to Liz or Liz sent this to me. We, we can't even remember anymore. Uh, <laughs> if this isn't singing, like if protest music has somehow lost some element, what is it? And how can we have a good collective experience that both reinforces the social justice movement and also lets us sing together and express ourselves and join together and make some magic. The funny thing is, is that we had to like unearth what it means to have that magic because we really honestly thought of it as like a spontaneous, natural outcropping of uh, anyone's sense of justice and righteousness. And really it's it's a little different from that. It's not what we thought. Nope. Yeah, we had to set out to understand what protest music meant 50 years ago and what it can possibly mean today. That's right. And we were surprised and honestly kind of thrilled and delighted to realize that it can still happen. It still does happen. And we can learn from the past and use it to inform our future. 
So where are we going to start? I was just going to say, <laughs> this is a very popular, um, a popular way to phrase things is, what do we talk about when we talk about protest singing? <laughs> <laughs> so what are we talking about when we say protest music? Let me tell you about Dr. Daniel Leviton. Okay. So he's a neuroscientist at Montreal's McGill University. Ah, yes. Very familiar with it. From the outside, of course, I never actually been <laughs> in. Yeah. in the walls. Mm -hmm. uh, he's written several important books about music and neuroscience, including This Is Your Brain on Music mm -hmm. and his 2008 book, uh, The World in Six Songs. And he's got kind of a <clears throat> like a Northrop Fryish way of describing sort of the body of music. And it's kind of interesting because instead of having categories of genre, so like country music, folk music, classical music. Metal. <laughs> <laughs> he organizes his categories, the six songs of the title, around emotional content. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. So he says it's content over form. It's, it's what emotions are being evoked by the kind of song. Okay. So it's, uh, it's not necessarily like the lyrical content. It's a combination of everything. Okay. So like love songs and I'm assuming at some point protest songs. Exactly. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. And it, and it doesn't matter if you've got your headphones on in your room or you're in a huge stadium with like 100,000 other people watching the Black Eyed Peas. There, there is collective emotional experience. Okay. So That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 Now, he, and he says that these are universals, which surprises me because he's really talking a lot of the time about the Western canon of 20th century pop songs. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Like they like they are somehow emblematic of the these universals? Yes. Because okay. I think he's trying to use examples that we are familiar with. Sure. He does talk a lot about John Lennon. I'm just going to say that off the bat. <laughs> a lot of drug use. A lot of... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Lying in bed. <laughs> with big headphones, big those big cans on your head. Yeah. Yeah. But again, just he does say that this is universal, that, that songs played on drums in groups on a savanna are appealing to a similar set of emotional uh, colors as a song being played at a corn metal set. You know, mm -hmm. like it's sure. it's. There's there's similar things happening. I would suggest that uh, you really check out his TED Talk, which you can find on YouTube. It really covers the material in the book, and it's got like some modern dancers, and it's about 15 minutes, and he kind of runs through all the the six song forms, and it's it's uh, it's quite well done, and you really you really get the gist of it. Cool. We'll put that in the show notes. Okay. So in the world in six songs, he has the following: there are songs of joy, songs of love, songs of knowledge. Songs of religion, songs of comfort, and songs of friendship. Oh, okay. So there isn't actually a protest. Yeah. <laughs> like I would have thought one. Yeah. No, I thought one of those songs. I thought one of those songs would have been songs of righteousness or songs of uh, cooperation or something. Absolutely. I, you, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, he. Okay. Tell me a little bit about. It. He does call it songs of friendship, but I felt that that chapter title maybe should have been actually called songs of social cohesion. I realize that that doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way. <laughs> right. Yeah. But he does talk about goose stepping Nazis. Ooh. And I don't think yeah. of them as being like friendly. No, no, that's true. No, no, they yeah. they cohered, but not in cohere. not in a friendly way. Yeah. Not in a friendly way. <laughs> the evil does know how to hang together. It's true. No. <laughs> Okay, so 
he calls them songs of friendship because mm-hmm. this is where we also find the seeds of protest. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. This this reminds me. Okay. So anytime we talk about singing in choirs, there like every article I've read, every like mm-hmm. clip on, you know, like a TV nightly, like here's the health benefit of choirs. Yep. That we, we, let's let's summarize that for yeah. the peeps, right? So research shows that people who sing together, when they p- performing synchronously, they enjoy the physical benefits of coordinated movement and heartbeat. Mm-hmm. They get uh, they get an uptick in their oxytocin, and that which is the That's love hormone, the love of course, hormone, that makes, yep. you, makes you feel warm and connected. That's right, and you feel a sense of unity and well being. Right. So if you're singing a song with a group of people, you get the brain fizzies and you feel warm about the people that you are singing with. Yeah, exactly. And also, your heart start to beat in concert. Is that right? That's and right. like, it lowers your um, blood pressure, all that kind of stuff. There are so, a ton of physical benefits to singing that's together. Right. And so when we describe this sort of chemical magic, it, it makes our brains, it makes it like our brains have tricked us into feeling something essentially is, is, is the sense. Right. So I'm going to quote him right now so I don't mess it up. He says, okay, what we call emotions are nothing more than complex neurochemical states in the brain that motivate us to act. Emotion and motivation are thus intrinsically linked to each other and to our motor centers. But the system works In the other direction, in addition to emotions causing us to move, movement can make us feel emotional. Ah, okay, yeah. So that ends up being a kind of virtuous circle of creating emotion, acting on emotion, sharing that emotion with a group of people, and then amplifying the whole thing. So I'm going to ask you to picture it. (laughs) <laughs> it's a gang of like Neolithic people building Stonehenge. And I'm going to try to illustrate this idea. Now, Jackie, I cannot push a 25 ton stone. <laughs> no, no, you can't. No. I can't either. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not no. mocking you in any way. <laughs> we're, we're ladies who wear glasses. That's right. It's, <laughs> and crowd into our closets and record podcasts. Yes. <laughs> we are not the brawny types. No. Uh, so, but there's dozens of these rocks at Stonehenge. You need groups of people and you need them all working together towards one goal and not arguing about how to get this goal done. <laughs> just, just pointing that out, people. People are people. <laughs> so I'm not saying that the builders of Stonehenge sang together, but it would have really helped for all the reasons that we were just talking about. When you're singing together, when you're working with people, you're doing physical labor, you work better. Your your movements are coordinated. Yeah, you can act. You can physically bear burdens for longer when you're singing with other people. You can achieve a lot more with a group of people than you can by yourself, and you can achieve a lot more with people who are singing. So, is it the oxytocin that does that? Yeah, I think it is. It's uh, because of the singing and the working, and you're getting the stones, and you're working with your people, and you've got this team. Your bodies are working together. You've got rhythm working for you. Because you're achieving more, you're seeing what you did yesterday. You're going to do it again tomorrow, you know, and there's a real sense of like identity that gets built up with this. You're the guys who got up on top of Salisbury Hill and you're looking out over the valley and you can feel the power of grace, God, and you've got your stone into place and you are awed by the love and the power of grace, God. You've been working on that crew and it was the greatest time of your life and the sweat of your brow really meant something. You made something that would last a millennia. Yeah, and confound people for years and and give 
inspiration to Spinal Tap. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a silly example, but like you can see how singing would have been a part of creating a sense of identity, creating social cohesion. Research shows that synchronous, coordinated songs and movements, they create strong bonds. You feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. There's actually, there's also a little something else that happens when you have a group of people singing, you have these overtones that are working together, and it actually always sounds like there's more people. Oh, like the fifth the fifth voice. Just like the fifth voice. The fifth voice is, a, is an excellent example. It's a Sardinian choral tradition four tenors would sing to these four male tenors would sing together and they would produce this other voice uh, this is really familiar to me because i saw a documentary about the mamas and the papas apparently john phillips would get super high and make the four mamas and the papas sing songs over and over again so that they could produce a fifth voice right, right? so like so that their subharmonics would create a fifth voice and it wasn't until he was like really stoned and they had sung in tight harmony for hours and hours that they could get the actual uh, sound that he wanted, which was the sound of five people, not four. Amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> well, the fifth voice from the Sardinian choral tradition called La Quintina, uh, it's supposed to be Mary, Mother of Jesus. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, for John Phillips, it was just, you know. Another stoner dude in the room, I guess, probably. But, you know, that's, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> or maybe it's the spirit of David Crosby joining in from the other, the other side of Laurel Canyon. I don't know. Okay. I mean, John Phillips, Sardinian tenors, believing that it's Mary, Mother of Jesus singing with them. You know, I think there's something a little bit mystical about it. I think it points in the direction of what we're talking about here. Yeah, like when you when you hear a group of people singing together that closely and having that sense. It's powerful. Yeah, it's really rich and sometimes it can freak you out a little. <laughs> I actually found a clip of Sardinian singing in a Dublin pub and it's kind of freaky. Um, have a listen. <laughs> dominate this space and it is an amazing bar trick <laughs> it's a little bit a little bit mystical a little bit otherworldly so then if you have like a really disciplined group like an army or something really single-minded or you know a group of protesters totally these are my friends this is my family these are my people this is my country now we're singing national anthems together now it's you know now you're cheering for your favorite sports team yeah exactly yeah, I mean, you can bring people together to work collectively to achieve something, or you can cheer people on to, I don't know, win a soccer game. Right, exactly. Because that sense of social cohesion is turning into like jingoism. Mm -hmm. One of the evolutionary ideas about singing is, and I'm going to quote Dr. Levitin again here, it's a clear indication that group members are paying attention to each other and have a common interest. Mm, that feels good. That feels good when you know you've got like a huge crew of people who hold you in their hearts and That's right. want what's best for you. I mean, we talk about it in a much more explicit way now, but the idea of being seen and heard mm. is fundamental. Absolutely. And singing was a way, is a way of 
seeing and hearing other people. Are you saying that singing together was the social media of its day? I mean, <laughs> well, you can okay. see and hear Hang each on. other. Hang on. I'm going to I'm going to run with that for All a right, second. Do it. Well, insofar as it's a way for ideas to spread really quickly. Right. Um, bypassing gatekeepers. Then, um, yeah, actually, I do think it I do think it is <laughs> um, a catchy tune is going to spread faster than a dull one, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you might be dancing before you even know what the song is about. Hey there, you're listening to Choral Fixation, a podcast where we talk about singing together. I'm Liz Walker. I'm Jackie Clydesdale. In the next part of our episode, we're going to show how remixing a song is a shortcut to sharing subversive ideas. It's actually a really long tradition, and Jackie's going to kick things off in the Middle Ages. Jackie? I read a book by a guy called Dorian Linsky. Um, I think he's an English music critic for... I'm going to say The Guardian. And he wrote a book called 33 Revolutions Per Minute, which examines protest songs. Mm. Um, he defines them as a song which addresses a political issue in a way which aligns itself with the underdog. Right. And that's the key thing. That's what we're talking about, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's the social cohesion of the underdog specifically. I also read a really good quote from Phil Oakes, uh, who said it was something like, a protest song is a song that when you listen to it, you realize there's no BS. <laughs> It's so straightforward, you can't deny it, <laughs> which I which I also really enjoy. So Dorian Linsky, mm -hmm. um, he kind of skims over protest songs before the 20th century because his his main focus is mostly on recording artists. So it's a little bit of a different focus from what you and I want to talk about. But he sums up protest songs before the 20th century like this. Okay. So you can trace them from uh, like medieval Catholic clerics singing Latin hymns with parody lyrics. Ooh, like the we the Weird Al of <laughs> Lombardy. <laughs> Essentially. And in the 16th century, ballads in Europe. Right. Kind of like pop songs you'd mm -hmm. hear down the pub, right? And a lot of times they would like tell you the news and like broadside ballads that like made fun of people in authority uh, or like cast aspersions on witches. So it's like, it's not all, it's not all good. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right, right. people of color or any right. sort of outsider too, right? Like, so we have to be careful with that and made heroes of criminals sometimes, things like that. So one example of a song that was kind of overwritten and was kind of like played back and forth in a way that's kind of interesting and complicated is Yankee Doodle. What? Yankee Doodle. I know. Okay. So originally it was actually just a straightforward kind of, I think it's a reel oh. um, where it was like uh, Yankee Doodle, spin your girl, turn her around. And it was the twist of its day. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then during the American Revolutionary War, the Brits started singing it as a way to taunt their sort of colonial American lessers. Right. And they sang the lyrics, Yankee Doodle went to London riding on a pony stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. Now, yeah. the macaroni line yeah. is in reference to a group of sort of like English fops, like the sort right. of new romantic, <laughs> fabulous pirate puffy blouses looking, you know, looking sharp. Right. So basically the Brits were saying to the Americans, you think you're sophisticated, mm. but you're mm -hmm. a bunch of hicks. The Americans during the Revolutionary War took that up and were like, we're going to sing this right back at you. You know who we are? We're the fops, but we're kicking your butt. I think that's really fascinating. Right. It's a song that... 
<laughs> it became kind of a protest. Not not so much a protest, in but like face. in your face. Exactly. You tried to tell us who we are. Now we're telling you who we are. So I really enjoy that. Yeah. So then from the dandies, uh, then we get into the 18th and 19th century. And protest songs are more like sermons with a moral message. Right. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, with the, the you know, talking about the 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 social justice movements of the day, abolition of slavery, um, working conditions in factories, votes for women, votes for women, yeah, all yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. And yeah, not as much fun as uh, macaroni, but yeah. not as much fun as, as, as dandies. It's true. So an example of this would be uh, John Brown's mm-hmm. body, which is sung to the tune of the battle hymn of the Republic. So that's John Brown's body lies a moldering in his grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. That was Pete Seeger himself helping us out there. So tell us about John Brown and why he got his own song. So John Brown was an abolitionist. Uh, quite a firebrand, you know, preaching and and he was a polarizing figure, I believe. Yeah, John Brown was absolutely a polarizing figure. He uh, advocated for violence in setting free enslaved people. Now, John Brown died in 1859. The song "John Brown's Body Lies a Moldering in His Grave" um, is an ode to him. And mm-hmm. it was taken up by the Union side. It was very popular. Ah. And they would sing because one of the lines is, he's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. If you're singing oh. about someone whose cause was righteous, who you believe in his cause, and you're fighting for that mm-hmm. cause, and you're singing right. that he's gone on to be a soldier in the army of the Lord, being a soldier in the army of the Lord in the cause of something righteous while you're singing it with hundreds of your compatriots. It is a very, mm. that, that reinforces your moral message on a level that's, that's about your identity. It's about. What's about your identity? You're like who you are and what you're doing. And it's about, it's infusing meaning into every action that you're doing, which right. is kind of amazing. Yep, Exactly. So part of the success of songs like that, like John Brown's Body, is taking a song that everyone knows and changing the lyrics. Mm. Because you've got a song everybody can sing right off the bat. Right. And so they don't need to learn the melody and they can pick up these new lyrics pretty quickly. You know, if you're in a coal mine or you're working a picket line or you're if you're out on the front line. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, was, that was unintentional. Well Thanks, friend. Yeah. <laughs> Then your your brain power needs to be reserved for other things, but you just want to get your objective done. But you need that moral support of your compatriots and to convince yourself too. I think mm. singing these songs helps to bolster your own your own resilience and your own drive. And then you hear all of your voices together, right. and that can be really powerful. You're sharing your strength with everyone else. Exactly. It's funny because when we're talking about songs, we always think about songs as being something that somebody writes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's this is this is a co-creation kind of thing, right? Like this is it, yeah. it is, yeah. This is going to come up again, so I want to posit an idea about protest music. There's tension in it, right? It comes from this origin, the like the tradition of tweaking existing songs and tunes. We think we think of a musical artist like you said like 
writing a new song, like creating it, right. bringing it into existence. But th- like there's this other hand in it, writing a protest song. And it's like, wait a minute, you just change the words and make it like that. And boom, you'll have so much more impact and so much more uh, ready effect with a with a bigger crowd. Right, right, right. And that if you got a bigger crowd, your message is getting out to more people. You've got yep. way more amplification, literally. Yeah, yeah, you're retweeting it in real time. <laughs> <laughs> okay all right i uh, i sent you a link i want you to click on it for a second oh okay you sing a lot of it i get knocked down but I get up again. I get knocked down. But I get up again. You never get me down. <laughs> okay. So that's Chumbawamba. Ah, Tub love that song. Love it. 1997. Huge hit. Huge hit for an anarchist syndicalist collective of musicians from England who had been recording. Who, if I'm not, who, if I'm not mistaken, actually set fire to a million dollars at some point. <laughs> like, yes. uh, those guys. Those guys. Those guys. And so yep. they also recorded an album of English rebel songs ah, in okay. 2002. Um, all very beautiful acapella style. And I'm going to use a song from it to illustrate this principle that we're talking about. The principle of taking music and readapting it for the purposes of protest. Okay. Okay. So right. like English folk music, it's like a total field to study and like you can mm. get a PhD in it. I don't have time for a musicology degree, but we're going to talk about the Digger's song. So okay. what we know about the Digger's song is that it was written in 1649 when Gerard Wynne Stanley was an English guy who was sick and tired of rich people enclosing on the public lands of his village. Yeah. Right. Right. So there's a thing that happened in the 17, 17th century where all the villages of England had had common land where everybody could graze their animals and everybody could kind of use mm-hmm. it. It was, it was like a big park. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly there was this Enclosures Act that was enacted by Parliament. And it said that... Basically theft. The, exactly. The, the, the rich people can actually take all that land, call it theirs, and then that you can... you. You have the freedom to choose to pay them rent in order to use it. Mm. Right. And so Gerard Winstanley wasn't having with this and other people felt the same way. And so he decided, nope, you know what? We're all worth the same. We're all the same kind of people. And so we are now calling ourselves the diggers. We're going to start digging up this land that we worked for. We Our families have worked for generations. We're going to dig up the stuff that the rich people have planted we're going to we're going to make camps, we're going to put up tents, we're going to just take over. It was Oh. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like occupy. Ocup- it's it's the occupy the rich people's property. Exactly. Okay. So, he writes a song and it's called The Digger's Song. So, have a listen. Okay. You noble diggers all stand up now, stand up now. You noble diggers all stand up now. The wasteland to maintain, see Cavaliers by name. Your digging does maintain, and persons all defame. Stand up now, stand up now. 
Oh my gosh. Stand up now, stand up now. Your houses they pull down. Stand up now. Your houses they pull down to fright your men in town. But the gentry must come down and the poor shall wear the crown. Stand up now, diggers all. With spades and hoes and ploughs. Stand up now, stand up now. You don't have to listen to the whole thing, but what do you think about it? Your freedom to uphold, seen cavaliers are bold, to kill you if they could. Oh my God, that's beautiful. (laughs) That's so beautiful. I think it sounds like I get knocked down, but I get up. I get up again. Of, I mean, of, it's yeah, literally of, saying, "Stand up now, stand up now." Of 1649, that's right. You know, but the people of 1649 who heard this, they would have been like, "Oh yeah, I love that Captain Kidd song." Cap- <laughs> Captain Kidd, the pirate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, because in 1649. There was a really popular song called The Ballad of Captain Kidd, and it's hilarious because it's a song of, like, murder and theft because he's a pirate, and it was hugely popular. (laughs) Oh, so they would have heard that song? They would have heard that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's all about how much fun it is to be a pirate and do awesome things. Like murder people and steal and stuff. So anyway, okay. I sent you another link. Right, Click on it to hear this Captain Kid song. Oh my gosh, it's by Great Big Sea. My name is Captain Kid. As I sailed, as I sailed, oh my name is Captain Kid. As I sailed, my name is Captain Kid, and God's laws I did forbid, and most wickedly I did as I sailed. My father taught me well to shun the gates of hell, but against him I rebelled as I sailed. He shook the Bible in my hand, but I left it in the sand, and I pulled away from land as I sailed. My name is Captain Kidd, as I sailed, as I sailed, oh, my name is Captain Kidd, as I sailed. Yeah, it's the same. It's the yeah. same, t- it's yeah, the same for tune. for sure. You can totally imagine 17th century drinking men and women going down to the pub and carousing to this. Yep. Yep. I mean, pirates at that time were very much, uh, you know, part of their world. No, it was like, a, it was a career option. They, they, they were the, they were the hot stories. They were the clickbait of their day. And like one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's this like super popular song about being a badass. And you can listen to that song and think, yeah, that sounds all right. Being a pirate sounds awesome. Right. How about, uh, how about coming down to your local enclosure? Yeah. <laughs> But like using that tune about Captain Kidd for the basis of your political protest, like you're you're already like you're layering on. It's like, yeah, this pirate's got goodwill. Everybody loves this pirate. He's he's great. He knows how to he knows how to get things done. So let's sing a song about eating the rich. Uh, And you know what? Let's use that (laughs) tune about the pirate. That's smart. Yeah, it's really smart. It's. It's super smart. I mean, it's the Digger song is is still known. Uh, uh, what three hundred for uh, three hundred fifty years later? Because it's like it's a really is a popular tune. That the ballad of Captain Kidd, and I think one of the things that all these songs is 
is really illustrating is that once people start jiving to the music, then they start to listen to the words, you know, they're responding with their bodies first. Yeah, of course. I mean, when you when you look at those videos that go around sometimes of um, elderly patients with dementia or Alzheimer's and they play music for them, they put their headphones on them and then they just start to dance because I, I just saw one recently of a, uh, an older woman who had been uh, a dancer, like a ballerina, a prima ballerina in Swan Lake. Right. And they played right. Swan Lake um, and sh- her body started, like she started moving and it was, right. you know, their bodies remember better than your conscious mind does. Right. So mm-hmm. That's right. And I remember seeing one where a man was given headphones with a song from his youth and he started to he started to cry and he really kind of, he kind of came into focus for the mm. first time in the whole video. Yeah. And I think he was remembering the song, which for a person with, with uh, cognitive problems to be able to remember would be such a powerful, yeah, powerful sure. moment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wonder about how a familiar song can kind of ground us in our bodies and, and bring us back into focus in our muscle memory and and I wonder if that's one of the ways that a new idea can really enter in. I mean, if it if it does that to us individually, how can it affect us collectively? It can a protest song can bring us all together and then say we don't have to live this way. There's hope for the world. That's right, a new way of living. Thank you for joining us today on Choral Fixation. This is a podcast about people singing together. Our episode was written, produced, and edited by Liz Walker and Jackie Clydesdale. Our show notes will include all the books and the authors and the tunes that we watched on YouTube so you can check them out and learn more. Stay tuned for our next episode. Jackie's going to be telling me the long and winding history of the most famous protest song in English, We Shall Overcome. It's the story of powerful collaborations and well-intentioned people mucking things up. So, you know, the story of humanity. <laughs> You can find us on Facebook, Twitter at Coral underscore fixation, or email us at coralfixations with an S at gmail.com and tell us uh, what you like, don't like, what you'd like to hear, what your favorite protest song is. You can subscribe and like wherever you find your podcasts, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. sidebar i'm not sure if i'm going to use it but i actually really wanted to tell you about it okay (laughs) because it's kind of going a little bit off it's going a little off track okay but when stanley wasn't actually the only one to even do this um the song has been refurbished by lots and lots of singers and it was actually apparently a childhood favorite of joseph smith of the mormons fame (laughs) okay right okay so because he loved this song about captain kid as a child okay. 
the tune made its way into an American hymn in the 1830s. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I actually dropped the picture of it. It's called How oh Precious is the Name. Now, you can imagine, How Precious is the Name, Brethren, brethren sing, sing, Brethren, brethren sing. sing. How, how Precious is the Name, you know, Brethren Sing. So it's got the same rhythm. It's got that sort of. I've given all for Christ. He's my all. He's, he's my, my all. all. Wow. Right? Isn't that funny? <laughs> To That's see how wild. that song has evolved into. Okay, so then this song from the 1830s got kind of a remix in the 1870s with some new music. And it is actually now sung today. It's a very popular evangelical hymn called um, Precious Name. And you can oh, find wow. thousands of choirs online doing it. But the funny thing about it is that the, the, um, the verses have changed. <clears throat> Sorry, the verses have changed, but the chorus still retains a nugget of that Captain Kid ballad. <laughs> so it, click on this next link and listen closely because the baritones come in on the chorus and you can just really imagine them singing, as I sail, as I sail. <laughs> doesn't sound anything like it in the verses anymore really no but you get to the get to the chorus Precious name, precious name. Yeah, so it's there's this like shadow of this original song about a pirate Mm -hmm. that is still there. It's the beating ghost heart of this like evangelical hymn, which I I find really funny. Really wild. That's quite the journey. Yeah, it's it's I like I said, I don't think it's part of it. It 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 detracts from the protest song thing, but I just wanted to tell you about it because I thought it was awesome. It does, but if we can, I mean, if we can wind it around a bit, because I mean, that does speak to We Shall Overcome and kind of like the religious and the protest music getting intertwined, right? Right, right. It's the Maybe other the, way around, strangely. Right, right. But like sometimes. <laughs> the Lord works in mysterious ways. The Lord does work in mysterious ways. That is very true. It's very, very true. <laughs> 